Hi, guys. Welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I am Jennifer Tracy, your host. Welcome back. It's been a minute since I've been here with you guys. I'm so thrilled to be able to bring you this episode. My guest is just an incredible human being. I've had the honor of interviewing her on Zoom. She lives in Northern California, and I was, at the time of the interview, still living in Los Angeles. I am not in Los Angeles anymore. I'm on the East Coast right now, temporarily. Don't really know where I'm going to land, but COVID sure shook things up for me. I'm 100% certain that it shook things up for you guys as well. So here we are. We're back. (laughs) We're back. We're back. And so happy to be back on the air with you guys. How are you? You guys doing okay? Hanging in there? How's life treating you post pandemic? I mean, are we post pandemic? I don't actually think we are post pandemic. I think we're still mid to late pandemic. I do know that whenever I have a chance to connect with another human, it's always really nourishing, (laughs) much more so than I think before, because I cherish it that much more deeply. And so when my next guest's publicists reached out to me and said, would you want to interview this actress? She recently wrote her memoir. It's coming out. And they told me who it was. I am burying the lead. So you guys have to hang in there for a second. I immediately said, yes, 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 of course. Even though my life was totally up in the air, I was getting ready to make this move. And I'm so glad I did. So today on the show, I have Karen Grassley. You may remember her from the show Little House on the Prairie. She played Ma and she just wrote a beautiful, beautiful memoir called Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. I read the book cover to cover. It's absolutely stunning. I highly recommend reading it. You can also listen to it on audio. And Karen and I had such a fun conversation. I did not want it to end. She is a delight. Her story is fascinating. What she lived through as a young woman is fascinating as a struggling actress living in San Francisco during the civil rights movement, marching. And she was involved in all these amazing living in New York, going on Broadway. Just wow. She's lived such a full life going to school and studying in London. All of this is in her book. And we touch on it a little bit, you know, we could, it, you can't get all of that. Uh, you can't get a whole memoir in an hour long podcast, but it was sure was so much fun talking to Karen. And I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here's Karen Grassley. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, such an honor to have you. And I have to say, I just had the immense pleasure of reading your brand new memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. And wow. And first of all, congratulations. I know how hard it is, how much work it is to write a book. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. And my goodness, your life story is just fascinating. And you've lived so much. And I just, I want to say this to our listeners not only is this a book about self-discovery and womanhood and, and a life lived, but if you're an artist of any kind, I highly recommend this book because I really feel like I got to experience, among so many other things in the book and other topics that we'll get to, this beautiful evolution of you, Karen, as an artist, really. I mean, that was something to behold, and, and I just thought, I mean all of the theater that you got to do and pursue and all the people that you got to work with. And I mean, wow. It's been such an amazing journey. And from the beginning, I thought of acting as a path that one takes and that it was like um, Zen and the art of acting. And that whatever obstacles I would come up against were part of helping me to grow and change and be 
more available as an artist. And so it was never dull, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to that, having read the book, let me tell you. I mean, wow. And, and there were many times, you know, that you really were living just barely above poverty level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they say starving artists and it was, you know, you really depicted those moments of counting pennies at the Safeway and, you know, yes, barely yes. making rent. Yes, I did all that, but I never went hungry. Yes. You know, I never really worried that I wouldn't have a meal. Yeah. And and, and I could have gone and worked, uh, you know, at an advertising agency or something like that if I had been that stressed about it. You know what I mean? It, it was it was my choice, which is so different than when you have kids and you don't have enough money in the budget to feed them. And there are so many women going through that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I want to eventually I want to get to Battered because that's also a really exciting project that I want to talk about as well and, and your work in that arena, you know, but I, I think it's so interesting that you say, you know, you, you, it was a choice and you never went hungry and the work, it seems, fed you on such a deep level that it was just that just kept you going, even through the depression that you experienced. Well, you know, what was so hard was when I wasn't working. So there could be months, you know, on the unemployment line or uh, scratching uh, to, to get a, raise a little cash here and there. And at those times, not having the confidence to know, is this going to work out? Sure. You know, just being like so uncertain about everything. And for me, the, the work, even when it's challenging, is rewarding. But not working just brought up all my insecurities. Sure. And, and yet you have like continually so much grit and so much uh, ingenuity. You know, you were, you were a fit model. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it just like you should just say, I'm going to do this. And I loved that when, when your partner at the time had to take a job in a play about a man falling in love with his pig. Yeah, you're like, you, you have to do it. You have to do it. We need the money, you know, and um, yeah, just... he needed he needed the exposure as an actor. Yes. If, if you weren't in a play in New York City, no one knew if your work was good or not. Sure. So, you couldn't be taken seriously. So you had to have a show in the city. That was the big deal. Yeah. So, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about, so speaking of, so before Little House on the Prairie, when you got the call, there's a line in the book where you say they were interviewing you, the first interview, and you said, oh, I left out the part, you're talking to yourself kind of in the car ride home. I left out the part where I was about to just scrap the whole acting career and become a psychology student. <laughs> and I think any of us artists have had that thought a million times because of everything you just said. But then you got the part and your whole life changed. Yes. And the yeah. other thought I had, Jennifer, right after that interview was, oh, my God, I told them about the Broadway show that closed. I told them about the movie that fell down. I told them all these chances I had and how none of them worked out. Now they'll think I'm a loser. Mm -hmm. And then this one clear thought came to me, and it was, well, I told them the truth and if they don't want me then that's not the right job for me and that was like such an insight you know yes yes i love that 
And then of course you got the job that, that changed your life and changed the world ultimately. I mean, this unbelievable, huh? Yeah. Oh, we had no idea. And we're working so hard, but we had no idea the impact. impact. Yeah. And so I'm kind of jumping ahead because most of the listeners will, will know the show and, and appreciate the show. We've all watched the show a million times. We probably still watch it sometimes when it comes on syndication uh, or, you know, but. Um, I had some people tell me that during the pandemic, they went back to the show because it comforted them in yeah. times of such uncertainty. Oh, yes, it is very soothing. And, and just, you know, watching this family carve out a life for themselves and a community for themselves and, and grow with each other. I mean, boy, when we were all isolated in lockdown, that was that was all we craved. Yeah. Yeah. Stability. Stability. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the disparity between uh, male and female actors in Hollywood. And I will say, you know, a while back I had Jenna Elfman on the show and she talked about it very openly with her current show that she's on, uh, Fear the Walking Dead. And that it came up right out of the gate where there was a huge pay discrepancy between herself and the leading actor. And uh, she says it in the podcast. She said that the producer said to her, well, we don't want his feelings to be hurt. <laughs> and she put her foot down and said, too bad, you know? And, you know, now this is 2019. Uh-huh. So she was able to get her contract fulfilled in the way that she desired. Obviously, I don't know the details of that, but right. the fact that that was still, ha- is still happening is just yes. me. And then I'm reading in your book about this, this thing you went through in the 70s of having to fight tooth and nail just to get a pay raise and have pay commensurate with your co-stars. Well, you know, I didn't expect to be paid what Michael was paid. Michael is a huge, huge star. He's right. been on television his whole life. He's the producer, the director, and sometimes the writer. And I never expected to be on his level, but I expected to be paid what other Actors are paid in top 10 shows who are working so hard. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what gave me the stamina to not give in, that Mm -hmm. I could hold on and refuse to give in. I, my advisors said, you know, take the, take this offer. And I was like, that is not the right offer. Mm. And if I'm going to do this job, then I want to be paid what I what is appropriate. And I was severely punished for that. Mm. So scripts began to have fewer scenes for Ma, fewer close-ups, a chill in the atmosphere. Some people on the crew or the cast withdrew from me. And it went up and down like that, even after the contract was settled and I won. And how long did that take? Oh, I, I, you know what? I'm not sure, but it was more than a year where I continued to work and show up and do my job. It was so hard. And smile and say good morning, you know, and keep going. And um, of course, a lot of actors just stay home and they say, I'll be back. You know, I have the flu. 
and I'll be back when this is settled. But my attorney and I uh, did not want to do that. Sometimes when I look back on it now, I think, well, that, that's what I should have done. Mm. But it was what it was at the time. Right. One day we were shooting out on the ranch and it was getting late. And you know how it is in California. You rely on that sunshine. Yeah. We're losing light. <laughs> right. And we were, we were now moving into overtime. And they needed one more shot with me. But I needed to go up to the trailers and change. And as I was walking up this hill, this incline, to where they were parked, I thought, if I slow down now, it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Do I slow down? Mm. And I said, no, I'm just going to do my job. And again, that was probably not the best choice because they needed to have the consequences, not just me. Right. But were, were you afraid of... I mean, you did stand your ground, but I, you know, I guess maybe I'm projecting my own stuff of, of I've had experiences on set. I, ha I didn't have anywhere near the career that you had. I had little tiny things, but where I was, you know, felt like I had to do things that I wouldn't have normally said yes to, or for a stupid example, but I was on a commercial one time and they wanted a dusty atmosphere to seem like light was filtering. So they had this PA banging old carpets together in the house that they had rented. And then they wanted me to walk through it. It was dust. Oh yeah. Oh sure. And I was Absolutely. like, that's disgusting. That's horrible. My lungs like, you know, but I just thought, no, you just got to do it. That's your job. You just got to, you just got to, that's right. When you're that's an actor, right. you just have to just do it. And it's, that's right. And, and so you hold your breath, right? You and hold you your walk breath. through it. Yes. Um, because really holding up production is like the ultimate sin, right? Because it's so expensive to have all those people standing around. Right. And it's a great way to get blacklisted. Yeah. So she's difficult. You know, she wouldn't walk through the dust. Right. We had so much dust. Oh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> that ranch. I can't even imagine. That's why I call it prairie dust. I love it. Yeah, well, because of it's it's not only the physical dust that was so fine; it would just eat its way into every part of you, but it was also the way the atmosphere became clouded by the negotiations. Uh huh. Can you talk a little bit about your addiction during this time and how that ebbed and flowed? When I was uh, on the show, part of my reaction to the negotiations was to drink more than I drank before. And I think I had always been alcoholic. I think I inherited it from my dad, but I had been trying to control my drinking my whole life. And one of the ways I had controlled it was by not having very much money because I would just have like two beers in my refrigerator for the week. But once I started making money and buying nice wine and having people give me gifts of scotch, and you know, so the disease began to creep up. And uh, where I had always had a problem of not knowing when to stop, uh, it became even worse. Now, I didn't drink in the morning before work or anything like that, but I 
drank more and more in the evenings and I felt sorry for myself and I felt estranged from uh, Mike and I was full of blame, you know, why are they doing this to me? I mean, just terrible thoughts. And so I, uh, oh, and also I had this stored up anger, so awful. Um, I think that I've been storing it off and on since childhood because when I was growing up, my mom didn't believe in us expressing anger. So over the years, like in my 20s, in therapy, I began to understand that I was angry. But when I got drunk, I would get angry, you know, I have strike out at somebody, but I, then it would tamp down again. So that anger would explode. So my relationships suffered, you know, there were dear, dear men who really loved me, but they had to leave. You know, it was really too bad. So fortunately, I did know that there are ways to stop drinking. And I did reach out for help and I got help and I was ready to take that help. It's a, a great mystery why some people can take the help and some people can. Uh, my own dad died of alcoholism and why he couldn't take the help, I'll never know. But the help is there for all of us who need it. And it's just whether we want it, you know, and, and can grab hold of it. And boy, did I grab hold. Mm, mm, absolutely, absolutely. And you were still very young when you got sober, uh, in your 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, many people don't come to that. I mean, ever. Most people <laughs> don't, honestly. But what an amazing journey. And uh, just, you know, I, I applaud you for for that. It takes a lot of bravery. Well, you know, Jennifer, nowadays, a lot of much younger people get sober because the drugs make people get sick and hit bottom so much faster. Sure. sure. So uh, I, I see a lot of young sober people who are, you know, beginning great lives. I mean, I, and I've talked about my own sobriety on the show many times, but <clears throat> I and I never, uh, drugs wasn't my thing. Booze was more my thing, but I got sober at 23 and I sometimes still marvel. But for me, it was, you know, I saw what my drinking did to me, to myself, to my relationships, everything you said, the self-pity, the depression, all of that. It really took me away from, I wasn't thriving. I wasn't fully thriving in my life, even though I was having, I'm air quoting success, uh -huh. you know, in my career and so forth. Uh -huh. I wasn't thriving and I, I found my way into a support group and I saw these women. I remember just seeing these women, you know, women like you are now. And I just thought, I want that. I want, <laughs> I want that. And I just, I held on tight. I just said, tell me what to do because yeah. I need yeah. it. And you were, you were willing and able to listen, which is a gift, yeah, a total yeah. gift. We don't know why some of us are able to do that and even the people who come and go for a while they often do get it yeah but we don't know when we don't know why yeah and people if people don't give up they can have a new life yeah truly so I want to read something from your book that oh, okay I, I really appreciate that you read it Oh, I, I read it cover to cover. I didn't uh -huh. miss a word of it. I thought it was brilliant. I think everybody should read it. 
uh, page 217. So we're more than halfway through here, but you talk about this and I got chills. You were being interviewed on a show to promote for press for uh, Little House. And you said um, you were talking about Ma and her, her duties on the show and what her life was like. And the interviewer said something about uh, women having to, you know, stay home and have that kind of role. And you, your response was, there's never been a better time than now to be a woman. We have so many choices today. That's what you said to her. And then you say in the book, and still, even with all the appliances that make life easier, no matter what a woman chooses, if she has the need or desire to be a mother and to work, it can be a strain. I could cry reading this right now, especially in this country where childcare can be hard to find or afford. In my case, you write, postponing motherhood never felt like a choice. It was a necessity. And wow, did I relate to that? Did I think, oh my gosh, all my listeners need to hear that. Every woman in the world, pre-motherhood, post-motherhood needs to hear that. It is so, such a truth that it's why I started this podcast. It is the, literally the reason why I started this podcast because when I had my son, I felt so alone and I felt like I couldn't work. I couldn't audition. I had to bring him to auditions. Then he was a toddler and I didn't have childcare. I didn't have help. I was oh basically my God. a parent and I was 34 and I thought this is the time that I should be working the most and I can't. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you about that because your journey to motherhood is, is a little bit different than the, the traditional um, you are a mom. I mean, you were a mom on TV to those kids and you are a mom now. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, I really uh, couldn't uh, fathom how to be a mother and be the actress that I was in New York. I didn't have any money. And then I couldn't fathom how I would do it while I was doing a series because the hours are so long. Now, there are women who do it and God bless them. They pull it off and they have wonderful kids and wonderful relationships with them. So it can be done. I didn't see how I could. And so I waited so long that it almost looked like, well, physically, this is just not going to happen. You know, when I did get married, my husband and I were both older. And uh, when we looked into adoption, uh, older parents were not at the top of the list uh, within the state. So I investigated uh, independent adoption, and it turned out that that was the route that we took and uh, had a beautiful, healthy baby uh, who is my son, Zach, who now is in his 30s and doing well. So nothing, nothing about that situation followed a typical journey. And there have been times in my life when there were more therapists for the family than there were members. So, <laughs> no, really, I have to say it has not been easy. Yeah, yeah. And I can't account for it, but that's, that's my kind of life. Mm. And uh so does that answer your question? It does. Oh, no, it does. I mean, and and I'm thinking how beautiful that, because I believe you were, well, you were 40. You're 40 when the book ends, and that's when that kind of happens. And 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 you, you're newly sober, and you have this, you've, you've made this beautiful life for yourself. And so is that about when, when you adopted Zach? Yeah, I, I don't go into that in the book. 
I, I leave that as a kind of hope yeah. that the character Karen has for her future, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, we, did, we did pursue independent adoption. There was an agency in Berkeley and we flew up here and uh, talked to them and they advised us what to do and write, write your letter and then put pictures. And so I was getting that adoption package together at my kitchen table when a friend of mine telephoned me and said, listen, you've got to call this lawyer. I just ran into a colleague of mine and he said, they are just getting ready to have two babies. And I said, what? She said, well, they had lined up an independent adoption and then she got pregnant. And I said, that's the woman I want to talk to. So she gave me her lawyer's name and I called and the lawyer had someone who was a birth mother who was looking for parents. And so uh, my husband and I went and next morning, 9 a.m., Beverly Hills office to see about this and everything unfolded. Uh, it was like Niagara Falls. It all wow. happened. It all happened so quickly and so seamlessly. Uh, it was just, just meant to be. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love, thank you for sharing that story. And I just, I love, you know, we have so many listeners who have had, um, you know, multiple miscarriages, trouble getting pregnant, or, you know, any, when, any configuration of things that lead them to a point in life where they are ready to adopt. And, and I mm -hmm. think the more stories that we can have out there of that successful adoption story is, is beautiful to share. So, cause we, you know, yes. we feel less alone. Yes. It's yes. And I, I know some people are very, very attached to their own genetic material, but we just felt that there were lots of opportunities to be of service really in raising yeah. a, a, a baby. Yeah. And how was it balancing motherhood and your career? Because your career certainly didn't end once no, you became it, a mom. So no, it didn't end, but it was nothing like doing the series. Yeah. So it was a stretch, but I was so lucky, Jennifer, I had money. Yeah. I had money and with money, you can get help. Yeah. With money, you can arrange things. Yeah. You know, and even at that, I found it a tremendous stretch. Yes. Of racing from that audition to that preschool and the stress. And, and that's with privilege. Yes. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and have we seen during the pandemic how it's the women who had to cut back their work hours and it's the women whose careers are taking yeah. a hit yeah. because, because of their dedication, because of their love, yeah. you know, love. I mean, it, it's, it's harsh for them to have these sacrifices, but it's for love. Yes. So later... I, I don't know. I think sometimes if we do everything we think we can, you know, within whatever our limits are for our kids, then we can't later start beating ourselves up, you know. So uh, I would say that my career choices were severely curtailed by the choices that I made. But those are my choices, right? 
And we were talking before before the show about different chapters of your life, you know. And today, women are still young at 50, at 60, at 70. Yeah. yeah. You know, so there's st still lots of life to live. Yes, definitely. I want to jump to talking about battered. And I want to talk about the work that preceded that. So this was, this was before you became a mom. You got interested in uh, helping women who are suffering from and have suffered from domestic violence. Well, yes. Yeah, so um, my friend and I, Cynthia Lovelace-Sears and I, uh, we wanted to write a movie of the week. And in the 70s, it was very popular to have a movie of the week every week on the networks. And uh, a lot of them dealt with social issues and brought things to light that had not been really examined in our society. So we were looking to do something like that, that would be um, of social value. And while I was out promoting Little House, this reporter shared her work with me that she had done this original research about battered wives. And I, my jaw just dropped at what she told me because I had a cliched idea of what violence against women was, that it was only uneducated people. It was only poor people, you know, not, not you and I, dear. So she straightened me out on that big time. <laughs> Doctors, wives, policemen's wives, judges' wives, you know, every walk of life, but those unexpected walks of life. And so Cynthia and I did our own original research in LA where there was a shelter for battered women. And we really immersed ourselves in their lives. And we wrote this script and it went on the air for NBC, uh, not without hitches. Oh no, it wasn't a smooth path, but it did get on the air. It got on the air in a way we could be proud of. And it influenced police departments in how they were going to handle domestic violence disputes. It influenced legislation. So we were very gratified for the two plus years we put in on that. That's amazing. And to be able to have that message on such a platform at that time also, I mean, what a feat. It was good because uh, there was very little understood about it at that time. There was one tiny little article in a woman's magazine about a shelter in England. I mean, it was really not understood at all. And unfortunately, Jennifer, these shelters, which are now all over the country, are always full. Yeah. And the pandemic has been very, very hard on this issue because the people have been trapped with each other and the stress and the unknowns and lack yeah. of income, you know, has all contributed. So it's been a it's been a tough time in that field. As it has been with um, people are uh, drinking too much. I understand yeah. that the people who work in rehab were just holding their breath because they were expecting this wave of new people seeking help and wondering how they were going to accommodate them all. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. I didn't know that piece, but it makes sense. And your work continued with that, did it not? 
Well, somewhat, you know, for a while, I was sort of a spokesperson bringing that message out to the press and um, told the story of what that was and raised some money and tried to get other actresses involved and, and as I said, work for some legislation. So it was a, it was a period when I felt very useful. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so now you've written this amazing book. It's about to come out. It comes out in November, 2021. I don't know why I'm holding it up because this is only an audio recording. I'm just so proud of it. I'm so- I know, I am too, but they can find it online if they uh, Google me. Uh, on my website, there's information about it and people can uh, sign up for my insider circle where I'm going to be you know, making announcements if I'm doing a personal appearance or having a drawing or whatever. Oh, so I love and that's on your website. Yeah. And there's, okay. there's quite a bit about the book there. And what is your website for listeners? It's karengrassley.net. Amazing. Are you on social media at all, Karen? Well, you know, uh, I couldn't get into it because I was so preoccupied with this book and it was hard for me to type on my phone. So now that the book is done, it's ready, it's at the printer, I am making an effort to do social media and to be consistent about it. And um, I'm uh, getting active on Instagram. So uh, today, for example, I have a little um, post about Alison Arngren's book, which came out, oh gosh, quite some years ago, and is an excellent, excellent memoir. You know, she was, she, she was uh, Mean Little Nellie on Little House. Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, almost, well, there, uh, there are about five books from us Little House uh, wow. contingent. Yeah. And so what prompted you to write the memoir? Oh, well, I had moved up here to the Bay Area and I didn't have very many friends. I was in uh, uh, what I call semi-retirement, because if anybody gave me a chance to act, I would go and act. But I had a lot of time. And so I had a lot of quiet time. And these memories just came so vividly. So I decided uh, I would take a memoir class. And the class turned into a circle uh, in the summertime for people who wanted to write. And then that turned into a writer's group of about 10 of us who've been supporting each other in our writing now for 11 years. Wow. Yeah, so women helping women. Mm, I love that. Well, and it's very hard to write by yourself. I mean, I think if we don't have at least a buddy you know, if not a coach, you know, an official coach, a, a buddy, a class, a circle, I think it's, it, otherwise it just never seems to get done. Well, I've, I'm one of those people who has a very um, strong sense of self-discipline. So I'm able to get myself uh, to the desk, but you never know if it's anything. It's like, is this anything? Yeah. Sure. So then when you have somebody else tell you, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. It's very encouraging. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very solitary and hard to, yeah, and you to know. judge what you're doing and, and is it any good? And 
Um, and it's very important not to judge too much, you know? Yes. Yes. It can kill it. I can tend to make my stuff too precious. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just have to just stop and email it to my agent and let it go. Ah, uh-huh. good. It's good you have someone you can do that with. For sure. So in that vein, I kind of want to sort of start to close out with mm-hmm. this other piece from the book. I just love the book. I just oh, love the thank book. thank you. It's so thank wonderful. You. you had, in, in, in the context of this chronology, you had just come back to uh, Los Angeles, <clears throat> excuse me, from New York on a phone call from somebody offering you a job that you thought was going to happen, right? And anyway, you kind of got stuck back home in Ventura and you remembered doing this show with Maureen O'Sullivan uh, in Denver, where I'm from. And she told you the story how she bet on herself and she got these photos taken and she ended up being Jane in the Tarzan movie and became super famous and that was that. And so you write in the middle of this page on 163, I decided I needed to bet on myself. And for me, that just also gave me chills because I could feel your conviction in that moment of just, you went, you got the headshots undone, you got your hair done, whatever the process was, and you just walked right out. I mean, what grit to walk in and just say, here it is, here I am, and here's these photos of me and that kind of vulnerability that was really hulled from all your acting experience and eventually, you know, got you the audition for, for Prairie. Oh yeah. I mean, it was only about three months from that fit I was in to uh, the call for that audition. Yeah. I was, I was teaching um, on a little rented piano. I was advertising as a voice teacher in variety. And I had one student who uh, was actually in business, but wanted to improve her speaking ability. And there I was charging $25 an hour, uh, which one week paid for the month rental of the piano. And I got the call <laughs> to go on the audition. Wow. And it seems like you just continued to bet on yourself. I guess that's right, Jennifer. Yeah. I guess that's right. Yeah. And as, and as I've grown more uh, respectful of myself, mm. and a lot of my low self-esteem issues have been addressed, and my explosive personality has settled, it's been easier. You know, like um, to come on the show today, it was like, I just have to trust myself that it's going to be all right. Oh, I'm so glad you did. It's been very enjoyable. I oh. hope it's as enjoyable for your listeners as it has been for me. Oh, I'm sure it will be. <clears throat> I'm sure it will be. And I'm sure that they're going to hopefully go onto your website and, and buy the book. We'll have uh, everybody will have links to all of that in the show notes. So you can find Karen, you can find her book, you can order it. Um, I highly recommend this beautiful, beautiful memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust, Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of MILF Podcast. Please follow us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you want to contact us, you can find us through my website, jennifertracy.com or milfpodcast.com. Stay well. Keep going. Love you guys.